0: Um, especially when I was at university. Um, I don't think I would have actually graduated had I not had assistive technology. You know, talents are going unnoticed.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this first episode in our new series, What Matters in EdTech, supported by BET. This series is all about the things that matter in education and how and when tech might help. Over the next six episodes, we'll be looking at inclusion and send, future tech and trends, well-being, innovation, empowering teaching and learning, and skills. We'd love to hear from you. Tweet us using the hashtag EdTechPodcast. This week's episode is all about inclusion and special educational needs and disabilities, or if you like acronyms, SEND. As you'd expect, the needs within SEND are broad and can include autism, ADHD, dyslexia, sight or hearing impairment, and a whole range of other things which often intertwine and vary according to age, geography and gender. In England, the current percentage of pupils identified by the Department for Education with SEND stands at nearly 15% or 1.3 million pupils. But definitions of SEND can be broad, are often tied up with funding and are sometimes impersonal to what is a hugely diverse spectrum of learners. Here's SEND specialist John Galloway to tell us more.
2: Uh, So, uh, people working with pupils with SEND in England Abide by the Special Educational Needs Code of Practice issued in 2015. And that gives a definition that says a child or young person has SEN if they have a learning difficulty or disability, which calls for special educational provision to be made for him or her. So that's a rather um, vague definition because it says, do you need extra provision for this child? It doesn't, for instance, if a child's dyslexic, you might think they're dyslexic if they're two years behind in their reading age from their chronological age. Yeah. So it, the definition is nothing as precise uh, as we might um, perhaps want it to be or hope it to be. I mean, there is a longer definition, that, that bit, um, I've just quoted you. It goes on to say a child of compulsory school age or a young person has a learning difficulty or disability, if he or she has a significantly greater difficulty in learning than the majority of others of the same age. Well, you know, significantly greater difficulty in learning. You know, if does this child stand out from their peers? Well that might be different in I don't know Isha to what it is in Newham. Mm,
1: mm.
3: Yeah.
2: So it's it is yes very imprecise.
1: Someone hoping to break down our understanding, identification and support for SEND learners is Dr Duncan Astle.
4: So I'm a researcher in Cambridge and in our lab we are interested in how children develop through childhood and into adolescence, how their cognition develops, how their brain develops and in particular why it is that some children struggle. So we look at that in lots of different ways. Maybe it's to do with something that's um, involving their environment and their home life. Maybe it's to do with some kind of cognitive challenge that they face. Um, And so we try and gather data on the different routes to being a struggling learner. Um, And we try and combine um, kind of things like neuroimaging, so imaging the brain in children, um, assessment of different types of cognitive skills, with different ways of analysing data using things like machine learning. What's kind of quite well acknowledged, I think, in practice, mm. is that if you had two children who had the same label in terms of special educational needs, for example, two children had ADHD, it may well be the case that those two children actually don't have that much in common in terms of the specific profile challenges that they face. Whereas you might get two children who have different diagnoses or different labels who have a lot more in common in some senses, and loads of children who have no diagnosis whatsoever who have very similar challenges. Um, So we wanted to see whether we could find an alternative way of identifying different profiles that exist within a large cohort of children who are identified as being struggling learners. And so what we did is we, um, in collaboration with lots of researchers here, including Joni Holmes and Sue Gathercoll and others, we opened a research clinic where practitioners like educational psychologists, special educational needs coordinators, um, people in child and adolescent mental health could refer children that they thought were struggling. And they would come and see us Um, And we would do lots and lots of assessments. And so we'd build up this really big database of all the kinds of profiles that you might find amongst kids who are struggling. And then we fed all the data into a machine learning algorithm. And it learnt about the kind of underlying structure of the data. Hmm. So whether there are particular common profiles that exist. And we could then test whether if children have had a, a diagnosis, does that predict what the machine learning will learn Um, and the answer is that it doesn't very well so the kind of diagnosis the kids had didn't predict very well the kinds of profile of difficulty that they had when they came to see us in the clinic.
1: Very very interesting and so what does that mean for in terms of assessment and identifying particular learning difficulties and how we might help address them
4: I think it confirms what I suspect many teachers have known (laughs) for a long time, which is that when a child arrives in their class, Mm -hmm. looking through their file and finding out whether they have a diagnosis or not, doesn't necessarily provide them with much information as to how they might support that kid. Mm -hmm. And that's because the label itself isn't very predictive of the kinds of cognitive difficulty a child will have. Mm -hmm. So firstly, it confirms that. And secondly, it identifies different cognitive profiles that are common. So, for instance, there are lots of kids who have um, short-term and working memory impairments. Um, there are lots of kids who have more kind of phonological, so sort of listening and decoding skills um, impairments. Um, the next challenge is then to is to think about how is it that in the future we go about identifying those kids um, if. if their their diagnostic label isn't very predictive of of having those challenges. Um, And one of the current big limitations is that schools can't really afford to get detailed assessments of kids who are struggling. Um, So in recent times, the provision of educational psychological services have been scaled back massively. Um, And so there's a massive need, really, for some kind of technological innovation to try and deliver affordable and usable assessments of different cognitive skills that teachers and special educational needs coordinators can use to try and help guide them as to which areas of cognition children seem to be struggling with.
1: In this episode, we look at those working across teaching, learning and research, supporting those with special educational needs and disabilities and how their efforts are making way for better identification of learning needs Better innovation in assistive technology and more inclusion in the classroom at a time when grade pressure is charged with marginalising SEND learners.
0: I think when you're going through this sort of school experience, it's like. it's pretty challenging when uh, people don't understand the, you know, hidden cognitive conditions such as autism, dyslexia, ADHD, that kind of thing. And uh, um, unfortunately, uh, it's it's still happening where it's a kind of every cat fits all. The education mm. system is is still flawed. I mean, you have pockets of amazing, edu- you know, schools where they um, are, are s- supportive. You know, and you have like SCND stuff, but at the same time, a lot of a lot of potential um, isn't being uh, tapped into, unfortunately, because all, all they want to do is is um, meet the legal obligations of trying to get young people to to just pass, whereas their true potential and, and uh, the fact that creativity isn't being nurtured in the education system, I think that's quite tragedy because mm. had I had that support I mean I'm, I'm working as a designer now but I think if it, things may have been a bit different if I'd had enough support um, I was fortunate to eventually get support in, in secondary school but it was pretty challenging um, at primary school level because I think teachers are pressured with with numbers and um, that obligation to just get children through. Mm. the experience, um, so it's, it's difficult to really speak on behalf of a teaching institution because they have to work hard and they're under immense pre- pressure yeah. you know, to get um, young people to progress, but at the same time, you know, talents are going unnoticed. Mm.
2: I think, I mean, if you're asking, uh, are pupils with special educational needs and disabilities more likely to get off-rolled Mm. Uh, then yes, they are. Mm. Yes. And I think the stats will show you that.
1: The challenges to schools for implementing support for SEND are many, and they don't just finish once students have left for further education or employment. Sarah Jones is a year three and four teacher and head and SENCO in a small rural school in the north of England.
5: Um, I think one of the big things at the moment is, uh, is probably everybody says is funding and having enough money to um, put in the interventions, so not necessarily interventions in terms of terms of removing children from class or um, extra teaching assistance or SEN assistance, but kind of the time to buy resources because there's a lot of really good resources out there, but a lot of them come with quite a high price tag. Um, and yeah, the price has dropped. I have to yeah, the price has dropped, but there are still some. You know, the the best quality kind of um, technology that we use still comes with quite a high price tag and what I find as a really small school is sometimes that that price tag is massive, if we we're in a bigger school, it, you probably can go, oh that's okay, but in a very small school it's quite a, it, that can be quite a challenge Yeah, we suffer with the internet because we're very rural, the internet isn't very good, so we have to have things that um, aren't just internet based, <laughs> we have to have technology that does download um, and quite often I have to bring iPads on to download it onto because our bandwidth isn't big enough at school. <laughs> I <know. laughs> um,
2: No, I think my biggest quibble really would be about um, pupil choice in the sense that uh, – and pupil um, independence. So in the sense that you or I or any of us, when we have a, a, a task – will t- pick up the technology that's appropriate to the task. Um, um, pupils in schools may, you know, it's either, if, if there's technology, so first of all, there may not be technology available. Secondly, it may be the technology that the school has, not the technology that the child needs. Uh, thirdly, it may be that the child doesn't, is, isn't the one who determines that this is the point at which to use technology. It could be that it's the teacher that says, you may now pick up your Chromebook, rather than the child being the one who thinks, oh, this is a task I can do on my mm. Chromebook. Yeah? So it's more about that independence and autonomy and attitude towards children and young people's use of technology um, than, than actually... Uh, I think that's the possibly the biggest barrier as opposed to actually the technology itself.
0: Again, the recruitment process is another subject area Mm. on its own, uh, which is pretty challenging. If you're autistic like me, it's just like, um, I'd basically say it is a bit like Mordor, you know. (laughs) You don't know whether you're going to make it. It's really tough. Again, it's that whole, this is another thing. Um, If you've, you know, if you've experienced challenges in, in education, and then suddenly you're thrown into the employment sector. They sort of expect you to be miraculously cured, hmm. and, and that you're not going to face the same kind of challenges. I'm thinking interviews, for example, are pretty intimidating, um, especially if you're on the spectrum and and you struggle with things like, uh, you know, um, interpreting uh, facial expressions, body language. Hmm. If you take if you take questions literally, you know, so it's almost like you're set up to fail before you even start. So, you know, and applications, I, I'm thinking they're quite lengthy and complicated, they can be, and job descriptions too. Again, it's just not inclusive, it's just not accessible for people. And, and I think we can do better because I think this system has been going on
5: for years, you know. Yeah. You are, um, I think it is really important that, that with our SCN children, we are, helping them to become as independent as possible because for most of our children their need is something that they're going to have to live with um, for the rest of their lives so anything that we can put in place to support them to be more independent and to develop tools that they can use throughout their life I think is is a real priority for us.
2: Um, There seems to be a challenge about appreciating what the technology can do and taking it out of our own personal settings and putting it into the classroom setting. Um, Another is the the preconception, particularly in the UK, I don't know what it's like elsewhere, with things like spelling, punctuation and grammar and the idea that uh, you have to be proficient in those things in order to be well-educated. And so somebody who is creating a text... Um, if they were using it on a device, uh, may not be allowed to use things like spelling and grammar checkers, as we as adults um, would be allowed to or would expect to in our Mm -hmm. everyday lives. Uh, And what we want from learning is for children and and young people to be able to show us what they know, show us what they've learned, to use the skills that they've picked up. Um, So you know, actually that sort of insistence can get in the way of them doing that. And instead of actually exploiting the tools that we have uh, at our uh, disposal, uh, we find that they—they um, kind of the barriers that they should be able to overcome remain. We're having to think about the spelling and the grammar and getting marked down for the spelling and the grammar instead of simply being able to demonstrate through the device through the screen. What it is they're able to do, and in part that's uh, you know we can also it means we can move away from literature. I mean, this podcast is a very good example of that. Mm. This might have been an article in a journal that we then uh, get through the post, you know. And now it is uh, voices, and people who are listening to this may well be doing other things while they're listening to it, cooking or you know doing doing their ironing, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's those kinds of things, the things that we take for granted in in our everyday lives. For whatever reason, we seem to don't think that they are a suitable way for children and young people to learn in schools. And yet it works for us.
1: The recent case of Labour MP Peter Kyle asking social media users who called him thick over his writing mistakes to go easy on him as he is living with acute dyslexia drives home the point that the impact of SEND doesn't finish at the school gates. So, with all of this background, what are the tech and tools that are making an impact for SEND learners? <laughs> I'm delighted to be on the line with Helen Caldwell, who is a senior lecturer in education at the University of Northampton, and also the author of the book, Technology for Send in Primary Schools, a guide for best practice. So welcome, Helen.
6: Thank you. I used to work in special needs. I was a special needs teacher in school, um, specialising in um, technology and it was ICT then, not computing. So for many years, I taught computing. Um, Then I moved to be an advisory teacher for assistive technology, advising schools around Milton Keynes across the age range and across the range of needs in assistive technology. So how they could use technology to support learners with different types of needs. Um, yeah, and currently, I teach computing, kind of mainstream computing. I teach um, teachers who are in practice, so CPD for teachers in computing, but also assistive technology. So I, do, I teach a module in assistive technology for students who are learning um, to, to gain a degree in special educational needs and inclusion. Some things are very simple, things like um, I don't know, talking tins, talking word processors, apps that recognise things that help you manage everyday tasks and help do, do quite straightforward things. And at the other end, there are some really exciting emergent technologies, you know, are, de- are, are developing.
5: Um, we um, we definitely use. Quite a lot of technology. Actually, we've got um, iPads seem to be our best friend at the moment, um, and apps. There are a lot of really good apps out there. Um, so, for example, I use the Nessie apps, and um, we use Clicker to support our SCR children with dyslexic tendencies. Um, and actually, I found that to be really effective. But again, it's not it's not a cheap app to have, but it's possibly the most effective one that we've had. Um, kind of when I first started off as a Senko. Um, We used to use like little sound buttons, we didn't have iPads in the school I was in, so um, I remember having those little tiny sound buttons that would record, so children didn't have to hold things in the memory, Um, but even kind of technology as simple as timers are really effective for children with SEN to kind of set them, you know, you've got five minutes of um, kind of, uh, I call it me time, or it might be, you know, time out or whatever it is that you want to call it. My name is Jenny Leigh Flurry
3: and I'm the Chief Accessibility Officer at Microsoft. So my job is to embed disability and accessibility into the culture and fabric of the company, so making sure that we essentially live and breathe inclusivity of the one billion plus people with disabilities around the world into our products, our services, uh, everything we do I think The one grounding thing we have to recognize is that technology has become a core component of the education system Uh, and in every classroom my kids included technology is a big part and then you look at disability and you look at that um, from the diversity of it you've got a billion plus people most of it you cannot see Uh, it's invisible or not apparent Um, and it can happen at any time and I think that's influenced a lot of the technology and the trends So if I look at what I think has got massive potential we're already seeing in the classroom and future potential, a lot of the technology is just built in. Uh, So if you look at Windows 10, built into Windows 10, you have the ability to put big fonts, big pointers, uh, color blindness filters, control your mouse with just your eyes, um, and screen reader built in, as well as the ability to add on other screen readers as well. And then you look at Office, and you just look at the simple features in there. Uh, Immersive Reader is the one that just jumps off the page, literally in some ways, because that's been targeted for kids with dyslexia, to be able to read um, and edit and write, sitting next to their peers, just have it in the way that works best for them. And we've shown that to have a good 10% improvement on reading rates. And then if you use that in Word, You can sit there and see your text in a way that works for you as a dyslexic kid and be sitting next to your friend, your peer that doesn't have dyslexia and be co-authoring, just using it in a slightly different way. I think that's incredibly powerful.
1: Um, Through your work, how have you seen different uses of technology um, help children with special educational needs or disabilities, um, especially with regards to supporting their learning as well?
2: Okay, uh, so lots of different ways. So it could be that the tech is simply a means of um, of connection with the device. So the person using it is has no learning needs, is cognitively able. Uh, but actually may have some sort of disability. And so it may be that you put in um, from something like eye gaze, where they simply control the screen with their eyes or voice control. So they're using their speech. Uh, it could be uh, there's one people I work with who uh, only has a short movement in his left hand. So he controls his computer with a large button called a switch. And uh, a light scans the screen and hits the button when it gets to where he wants it to be so it can be that level it could be uh, somebody who is has difficulty creating text and you provide software so that they can dictate to their device it could be they have difficulty coding so that you use uh, text to speech or you use something like say a, a reading pen which got a little handheld scanner which can help them read words that uh, they're getting stuck on um, there then there's you know things like uh, Pupils who are deaf, we may have uh, come across induction loops in classrooms. Um, Pupils who are visually impaired can use um, Braille uh, devices where the the, the Braille isn't fixed. So it uh, kind of um, bubbles up. It's kind of silicon based and Mm. the Braille dots come up. Uh, and then there's the obvious things like uh, presenting things other than through text, so providing video or um, animations and so on to make the learning more immediately accessible. Obviously, the, the one where the device provides the voice. So people who don't have a voice, Stephen Hawking is probably the most famous Mm. Um, example of that, and the voice device then becomes the means for them to be heard, to express themselves. Uh, there have been shifts recently with both Google and Microsoft. Mm-hmm. A Google G Suite, uh, particularly Google Docs, now has voice typing in it, which is incredibly accurate. It runs online, and you simply click on voice typing and talk. And Office 365 and also the installed version of Office the the most up-to-date versions, have both dictate buttons and uh, text-to-speech buttons. And 365 also has Immersive Reader. And Immersive Reader um, opens up any text to help you analyse it. So you can look at things like the phonics or the phonemes in a document or the nouns or the verbs. You can do things like change the appearance and change the the contrast between text and background. So you could have... uh, uh, dark blue on light pink, for instance, which some people have seen, some people find easier to read, um, or you can use a kind of a, a you know a letterbox bar that rolls down the screen. You can read a line at the time. So there are those technologies readily available. I think one of the challenges is that likes of Microsoft and Google um, that haven't necessarily trumpeted what they're doing, and they're, they're doing some good things. So there's things like that. Um, in uh, the Chrome browser, there's quite a lot of extensions. Uh, there's the read-write extension, for instance, from uh, Text Help, which it means that you can read any um, text sitting within the browser. Uh, so people who may struggle with um, you know, decoding text can use that quite easily. And then there's kind of some quite exciting technologies around. There's the... Uh, Rather um, fancy switches that Felicia Interfaces do called Cosmo, which is a set of buttons that um, will drive an iPad screen, but will similarly and or, or will similarly make music or will provide all sorts of activities that are physical activities that can be developed in such a way that they're very ex- inclusive. Um, and then you've got uh, things like Clicker Seven. Clicker Seven is a very inclusive word processor. Could be used by any pupil in a primary school, regardless of the level of learning need they've got, and then it will provide all sorts of additional support. So it'll give you text to speech, word banks on screen. It will help you write by providing uh, the the structure of a sentence, and you then build the sentences. Um, and and it will do lots more than that. And it's got a, a secondary version called Docs Plus. So very um, inclusion focused in the sense that you don't have to have any sort of learning needs in order to use it effectively, or you can have a whole range of learning needs and be able to use it effectively. So, you know, there are some good examples of, um, of resources, both, um, I was going to say mainstream, yeah, mainstream and specialist, Uh, that uh, can help in in lots of different ways and help uh, a broad spectrum of learning needs. But
1: what are the trends in SEN technology in recent years? The first is a trend towards the specialist becoming mainstream and with it a move towards a lower cost and better access to the curriculum.
6: Um so one key message
1: is that some, some things um are
6: useful for everybody. Um so some, some things that that used to be perhaps specialists are now becoming mainstream. So there are things like um voice recognition, um, things like um, using word prediction, using visuals to support spelling, um, using sound, using sound to support reading and writing. That's, that's quite a, you used to be quite a specialist, but now it's becoming quite mainstream. Hmm. It will be helpful for everybody, um, not just for children with challenges. I think that if
3: you look at technology and where it's going, we may see and can see a, a future where kids with disabilities are on not just an equal playing ground, but hopefully a little bit more of a boost. Um, one of the things that I think is truly exciting is Code Jumper, Just taking the simple principle of coding platforms, most of which are inaccessible today. So if you have a blind kid, low vision kid, they can't take the curriculum, which is mandatory curriculum for seven to 11-year-olds in the UK. They can't take it right now. That's not acceptable. Uh, Code Jumper is a tactile coding uh, environment where you plug together pods with different shapes on them to create pieces of music, and while doing it, you're also learning the key principles of code, like nested groups. And then you've got a UI on top of that that's accessible and usable. Um, That's the future that we want to see, where actually that's a fun system that not just works great for a blind, low vision kid, everyone wants to play with it because who doesn't want to create a piece of music? Um, it's inclusive, it's accessible, it's something that I think empowers the next generation of hopefully a ton of blind developers.
2: I, I think we can almost mark it from the iPad. Uh, when the iPad came out, there were there's a number of features that were previously very specialist and now they're entirely generic. So, touch screens for one. Such screens were once very big screens, uh, very expensive screens, uh, and uh, and now that were often kind of the size of a television. Um, and now they are, you know, in our hands. Uh, text to speech, where your screen will read to you. If you just think of uh, uh, Audible, you know, where the device is reading to you, or speech to text. Uh, we things like dictating text messages you walk down the street, but just uh, Siri or Alexa. Um, you know, people at one time environmental controls. People who had very uh, had challenges to their movement may be able to do things like shut the curtains and turn the lights on through expensive devices. And now it's simply it's consumer technology. Uh, eye gaze, uh, which is you know quite cutting edge, but eye gaze is now becoming a consumer product to use in gaming. Mm. Yeah, um, mm. and even even technology. Some of the, my favorite technology is actually Google Translate. And so people who have, uh, who are, say, new to English, uh, can quite quickly access, critical access or or communicate and engage in the classroom through the use of something like Google Translate. And uh, all these, like I say, were once very specialist technologies. And now we take them for granted.
1: And I'm I'm supposing that as a result of them becoming more uh, readily available, the cost is coming down as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, 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 not so many years ago, three, four years ago, uh, eye gaze was a de- dedicated device which would cost £10,000. Right. Uh, an eye gaze bar from Amazon is about £200 now. So yeah, significantly
7: down in price.
6: Um, I've come across this, this lovely project using a robot called AV1 from a company called No Isolation. And they help children and young people who are who have got long term illnesses to take part in school so the robot goes to school instead of the child and the child can see what's going on in the classroom on an ipad and so they're kind of virtually in the classroom and they can control the robot and they can ask to speak and they can join in conversations and it's it's like it's like they're there but at, at a distance
1: the connecting power of the internet has also seen a massive drive in co-creation of assistive technology solutions The user
0: experience. Uh, I think uh, when we're designing products and services for people, it's really important to engage the user in the end-to-end process. Hmm. Now, for example, take a building that's been designed. Now, if they do engage the user, it's like a 30-minute survey (laughs) and that's it. So it's like a 30-minute survey will dictate the next 30 years of my life going into a building. It just doesn't make sense. So what we, you know, try to champion with designers is involve the user, um, not just right at the beginning, but right, you know, throughout the process because things can be changing and they could, you know, it's really useful to get feedback throughout that process because, you, you will actually get the best product or service as a result. But Absolutely. if you just engage with them just for a few minutes at the beginning and that's it, and you go away and make a design, it just it's not going to, you know, without going back to them and asking them for feedback on certain stages of your process, it's really not going to be as inclusive as you want it to be.
3: Uh, our hackathon started in 2014, and I remember that first year uh, for the lack of sleep mostly, but there were 10 projects in that clutch of maybe 2000 that were focused on ability, on disability-based um, projects, and it won the company hackathon. In fact, the eye gaze hackathon uh, was the first winner. Um, I scroll forward to this summer where we had, again, our company hackathon with very little light, pizza, a lot of caffeine, um, I just, but you know, it's just a great environment for innovation. We had 280 projects and 1,900 people. And the winner again was a project all focused on epilepsy and how to track and trend those symptoms of epilepsy using a lot of the AI infrastructure uh, that we have. I, I just look at that of, of small groups of individuals coming together to work in a passion space that really matters to them to get nerdy, um, on every single table in that tent, you have a sign that says an inaccessible hack is whack and uh, gives detailed descriptions of how to make sure your video has captions and how to make sure your code is rightly tagged. That, that's a complete and utter mind shift change that we've seen. And we've seen that this is a space that a company that's got 140,000 people in can really rally behind. And uh, some of those hacks over the years have ended up in products, and um, I know there's many
6: more to come. So the Be My Eyes thing is a lovely idea. It's connecting it's connecting blind or low vision people with sighted volunteers. So you might volunteer an hour a week in your Friday lunchtime or something <laughs> from one part of the world, um, and you, you might be connected. People who are using Be My Eyes uh, are connected with with the volunteers, and and they. Um, they use their phones or their devices to um, to sh- show maybe maybe it's what, what kind of tin it is, or maybe it's what colour thread they they're using, or you know maybe they need a, something described. And um, it's connecting low vision with with, uh, with sighted people. Um, that's a
1: that's a kind of kind of crowdsourcing thing, I suppose. That, that's nice. Yeah. With this has come a drive towards send learners being independent and the creators to their own solutions.
6: Um, okay. The other the other thing that I've noticed recently is that there's a lot more um, connecting people connecting people who are kind of makers with disabled people who need personalised solutions. So to make custom custom solutions for people, um, that's a lovely idea. And there's a charity called Remap who does just that. They bring together people who've got skills in making things and people who need customised solutions, be all kinds of things. Um, I think that's an up and coming thing as
1: well. That's fantastic. That reminds me of a um, a kind of uh, organisation that I came across recently called um, Cybathlon. Um, And it's it's kind of like a competition where they get um, all sorts of different engineers Um, to work with um, people with a range of kind of disabilities or perhaps um, obstacles to um, some of the things they want to do in life. And then they they form teams and compete against other teams to kind of – Crack certain challenges, but I just think it's brilliant because it's also this idea of actually developing for a specific problem rather than problems that perhaps aren't always there.
6: Yes, and, and, and it, it, it's true actually that there, is, there aren't really any kind of one fixed solutions, it's, it's always a question of tuning person and their range of needs it's no it's never so simple as saying you've got dyslexia here's an app (laughs) it's Mm. it's never as simple as that it's always individualized solutions and the best the best tools i think are the ones that you can customize so you can try this you can try that you can have this on you can have this off you can have this voice at this speed Um, or indeed you can have your own content so apps and tools where you can put your own content into them Um, those are the ones that are really valuable
1: However, broad knowledge on assistive technology and how to assess what is having an impact is still limited.
5: Um, being, having the time as well to evaluate the best resources to support children is quite a challenge as well. Um, so I'm kind of always seeking advice from other people, from agencies or research online as to what, um what are the best resources to support so children for example we've got quite a high number of children who present with dyslexic tendencies um so finding the best resources to support them as well
6: well i think unfortunately it's still there's still um there's still a lack of knowledge generally amongst parents and teachers about what kinds of assistive technologies there are out there Mm. um it's it's not something that regularly taught. Um, I know I, I'm running a course right now, but I don't know very many courses like that. Um, and so um yeah, a lot of teachers don't don't really um know what's there. Um as we would do is think, try and get people to think about what an inclusive classroom really does look like.
1: There are, however, some guiding methodologies for educators interested in inclusivity.
7: Um. Cognitive accessibility is, is something really new to that agenda. Um, and it's just thinking about, you know, technology enables us to use different styles of communication, um, you know, be that predicated around visuals or language or words, uh, you know, kind of printed text. Um, it's it's thinking about how you can uh, or, or making sure that, that whatever... Products that you have can, you know, work with other um, other accessible brands or or other accessibility products that people might use, so that yeah. you've got that compatibility.
3: I think immersive reader is one great example of inclusive design, which is where you design for a person with a disability. You design through the lens of disability, including a person with a disability in the process, at least one, um, hopefully many. And you get their perspectives, you tweak it, and you make the UI and the interface just work beautifully for them. And you create an environment, and with Immersive Reader, you've created a system that empowers a person who's dyslexic, but also empowers somebody who just wants to read a dense document. Um, That's the principle of it, is that if you design with constraints,
6: you actually design for the many. There's this thing called Universal Design for Learning, which is an American framework from the <clears throat> it's from the center for applied special technology cast the cast center and the university De- design for learning has three principles it has the it's the idea that learners benefit from different ways of representation, so different ways of things, different different t- types of access into a topic, <clears throat> different forms of expression, so being able to show their understanding in different ways, and multiple means of engagement is the third one, so lots of different ways in, if you like, ways of, of motivating them. And that, that sits very well with technology, actually, if you think that you know, an inclusive classroom Information might be presented in different ways, content might be presented in different ways, and learners might show what they know in different ways.
4: Um, One thing that teachers often ask me is so, what is, you know, so let's say we identify that kids do have a working memory impairment, what can I do to help? And there are actually some really nice resources on that. And so, there's a a really great free handbook um, for teachers. Um, to advise them on how to do simple things like reducing working memory load in class that has been shown to be effective in supporting kids who have poor working memory so those sorts of practical um, workbooks are quite rare Mm. but where they do come up they're super duper useful Um, so there's a really nice one on like a practitioner's guide to working memory problems and I found that really helpful to give out to teachers
1: So, with so much readily available now, what future tech are guests getting excited about, which will have a further positive impact on Send?
3: Yeah, if you look at the hackathons in 2014, the winner was the EyeGaze wheelchair, which actually uh, ended up in eye control in Windows 10, uh, a core feature in the operating system. In 2015, we had the Learning Tools hack team, and that ended up with Immersive Reader and Learning Tools which is now just embedded into our browser, into Word, free tools that are used by over 16 million people a month. Um, We've also seen other projects come through, probably the most infamous being the Xbox Adaptive Controller. Um, I remember that one coming in the tent, and that was really about how could you game as a veteran. Um, Whether you have uh, one limb, two limbs, four limbs, whatever you may have, how can you game? Um, because opposable thumbs are currently needed for most controllers. Um, and it ended up with a product that hits the shelves uh, last year. Um, and there's more to come. I, I think uh, the other one that really comes to mind is Seeing AI. Um, and that team walked around for a week with a phone taped to their head. Um, and now you see it still as an incredible app that empowers blind low vision to really see the world takes pictures of images using AI and puts descriptions behind them, whether that's a person, a can of pop, um, or some text. Um, So yes, I think it's one of those where we've seen an amazing amount of innovation that's ended up launching into products, and also for us internally a lot of cultural shift um, as people get invested, motivated, and just excited by the opportunity to really empower someone.
6: I suppose I, I wanted, maybe I would, would add that I'm, I'm getting very excited about the use of artificial realities for learning at the moment, the use of virtual reality, augmented reality. Um, and I was teaching just yesterday, actually, I was teaching my group, um, the, the, the group looking at assistive technologies, and we had we had a whole session on um, virtual reality. And um, I was amazed at how many examples I could find of that those types of um, ways in um everything from um thinking about rehearsal, rehearsal through social stories preparing for something preparing for an, an experience an mri scan perhaps something like that yeah um using practicing social skills in virtual reality and giving a, an, a, in a safe environment managing anxiety um again giving people out of reach experiences uh, one of my students had this idea that we could you could take a vr set on a school trip, and, and the, some children might be able to participate in some of the school trip, but they couldn't climb the hill to see the view. <laughs> and they could be at the bottom of the hill with their virtual huh. reality heads on. Um, that was a good idea. Um, cool. So, lo- lots of lots of potential um, for using these immersive technologies. I think.
1: Extrapolating this to the workplace, are Lena hat a senior UX designer and BBC neurodiversity lead, and Sean Gilroy, head of cognitive design at the BBC.
0: Uh, so my name's Lena, and um, I work as a senior user experience designer uh, for BBC UX and D, uh, our uh, UX and user experience and design department. Yeah, and uh, I also uh, work with Sean on um, initiative, uh, the BBC's uh, neurodiversity initiative, and it's called Cape, which stands for Creating a Positive Environment.
7: Yeah, and uh, I'm the head of cognitive design uh, within the BBC's UX and D team. So I lead on the research initiative, uh, looking at how we incorporate uh, neurosciences, neurodiversity, and different aspects uh, of uh, cognitive psychology into the design process. Um, and I also work alongside Lena as a neurodiversity lead. From from the early days when we first started CAPE, we wanted it to be quite a creative initiative and we wanted to look to use whatever technology was available to us really um, as a means of engaging and accessing a community of people be they uh, people with a personal interest and so neurodivergent people um, or other colleagues who wanted to learn more about what we were doing. Um, so we uh, the, the VR experience was something that Lena was really interested in creating, and it took us a few iterations to get to that final product. Um, it, it was a bit of a, uh, a bit of an endeavor at the time because mm. the, the VR technology was quite new, um, so it was a bit of a uh, a bit of an experiment, really. Um, but it was uh, it, it was just something that we thought. It was a device that we could use at the time to, to engage people. It was new technology that they were interested in, so people would come anyway because it was VR. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also allowed us to explore uh, or, or provide uh, people with an experience to try and unpack what it was like for somebody. We used a, a workplace scenario of a, a team meeting um, and we just wanted to help people visualize or, or at least experience uh, some of the things that uh you know uh, somebody with autism or dyslexia or dyspraxia mm. were, were talking about so they could contextualize them we wouldn't say it's a simulation we we you know we we can't we can't replicate that for people um and it's it's a you know four minute experience so you know we're not saying it's a simulation but it's it's just something to give somebody something more tangible to understand when when we're talking about neurodiversity in the workplace
0: also, people, I think, tend to learn better in, if it's like an immersive environment. VR is a good tool for that. Uh, mm. The subject of neurodiversity is relatively new and um, there's a lack of awareness and education around the subject matter. And we thought um, there's so many training sort of modules and uh, available, which is sort of, um, let's say, Explained uh, in a classroom-based scenario, uh, where a professional, uh, someone who who hasn't got lived experience, is trying to explain what autism is or dyslexia is. And uh, the takeaways we've had uh, in terms of that kind of training is the fact that people don't seem to understand any better, you know, than than uh, you know from them before. Because what's happened now is that. People learn better if, if, it's, if they're able to immerse themselves and a uh, sort of talking head style training experience or classroom-based experience isn't, isn't particularly helpful. Mm. So we thought what's the best way to highlight a subject matter such as neurodiversity um, because of what's happening in education at the moment and in, in, in the employment sector the lack of understanding, how can we get people to understand it better? And also, it's, n- it's not just experience, uh, understand the challenges, it's more about how do we educate people about the beauty behind a differently wide brain. So uh, for me, um, being on the autism spectrum and also having ADHD, um, school was pretty challenging and it was difficult to express myself, to say what what the environment was mm. like to you know teaching professionals um and it was pretty challenging growing up, uh, I, I guess with that lack of support and understanding, so I thought as soon as I started this job, I thought, well, how can we make improve things And although the experience we created around virtual reality with the uh, you know, the experience that we have it's it's aimed uh, you know in the working environment, it can easily be translated in a classroom based environment too. So um, we've had feedback from others to say, wow, we didn't realize it was like this. And I'm like, yes, it's it's quite challenging. And the beauty of it is that, you know, people get to understand it a little bit better than they would in a classroom-based scenario, um, in a training scenario, um, where someone is just literally talking at them about the facts and stuff.
1: Yeah, um, yeah.
0: You know, so that's, that's what we wanted to do.
1: For me, supporting SEND is probably one of the strongest use cases for educational technology I've seen. Yet for most of us, we still have a limited knowledge of what SEND needs are. Better knowledge sharing can help and the opportunities are massive to enrich our worlds with what talent is out there, not just at school, but in the workplace and in our homes. I can't wait to see what is co-created next. Some final thoughts from our guests to end.
5: Yeah, I think I think the people that I go to most are other SENCORs. So in Berwick, we actually have a really close network of um, SENCORs and we meet kind of half-termly. And I find that one of the best sources of support because, you know, we talk about things that we're using. Um, we talk about the technology that we're using. We, we say, oh, yeah, this is working really well for us. And then you, you've kind of got a bit of a... It's, it's been tried and tested and you feel a bit more confident about going away and investing some time and money into it. Um, the other people I go to as well are our support from our outside agencies, like our um, literacy support team and our educational psychologists and our ASD support. Um, and I find that they really do have the, they have the knowledge and they kind of come back as well with, well, this school, you know, I've been to a school and they're using this effectively. And it's definitely about the people who are using it um yeah it's getting that you know finding out who's using it and getting that first-hand information really
1: that's all for this week thanks so much for listening in and huge thank you to all of my guests FET for supporting and the amazing send twitter community who rallied around and helped tweet suggestions for this episode you are all amazing you can continue the conversation online at hashtag edtechpodcast at podcastedtech and on all the social medias. For more Send content and support, check out the BET 2020 programme, where Send and inclusion is a key theme, supported and advised by some of this week's podcast guests. For all the show notes, including resource and reading recommendations, it's the edtechpodcast.com. Have a great week.
7: Cheers, Bye. 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 Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.